I'd thank Stephen and his family for bringing the deer. How fascinating to see them every time I've ever seen them. But there's, a, there's another thing that they're bringing today that they're going to introduce. So, Steve, I'm going to ask if you'll come up at this time. So, Steve, uh, just tell me briefly, what is it that we're going to see here? What have you been working on? And you all know by now, because you've been out there, that he and he's the owner of Steve Porter's Whitetails. He works it with his sons, so it's been a family operation. But they've done something new. What's the new thing you're bringing to us today? Sure. So I'll just give you a quick summary here. Um, started raising whitetails back in 92. Uh, why whitetails? It was just a hobby. I was tired of the neighbors shooting all the little bucks, wanted a pet. Next thing you knew, I fenced in, put up two and a half miles of eight-foot netting, and I had a few deer, and it spiraled into a business. Well, over the years, we've just looked at different things that we could do to uh, benefit our family, and then, and then, of course, to benefit the Christian faith or belief as well. So um, I took my family out to the Creation Museum in northern Kentucky maybe five years ago, and I went out there, and I've always been fascinated with apologetics in uh, I think uh, my brain, maybe your brains are like this too, we believe in God, we want to know why. Why do we believe in God? We were taught in school that, that we evolved from uh, the cosmic soup and that our lives have no more meaning than that of a animal that you hit on the side of the road. That's kind of what we were taught in school a little bit. And we have to unbrainwash our children and teach them that God created everything and that God created these, these animals and God created us and God's word in the Bible is true. So we went out to the Creation Museum and I was, I was really stunned to see the number of people at the Creation Museum, people hungry for God's word and something they can give their, their kids and their loved ones that proves that uh, God did create everything. We can open our eyes and look around us in nature and see that God's handiwork is evident. So I went home and I was kind of disappointed a little bit because a lot of the stuff in the Creation Museum had to do with rocks and fossils and dinosaurs and reptiles and snakes and things that were cold-blooded throughout history. And, and I raised deer. And so I thought maybe a warm-blooded, uh, uh, an animal like a deer, uh, the number one game animal in all of America, maybe that would be fascinating. Every time we do chores, we see insights into the lives of these white-tailed deer, and it's very self-evident that God created these deer. So I came back and brainstormed, and the idea was hatched that we needed to make a video on creation on, on white-tailed deer, evidence of God's creation. So we started this project, and we've done other video projects all of our camera equipment and stuff was outdated. We invested in a new 4K camera. I had Dylan start filming topics that I wanted about two years ago. It's been a two-year project. Filming topics and insights that we had. All this footage was gathered. Dylan spent two or three months this spring editing. We set up a sound room in my den, and I would actually stand there in a nice dress shirt with uh, sound buffering material we put together, and I'd have a pair of gym shorts on, and I'd be barefoot. But the camera only shot me from here and up. Okay? So it looks really professional, but it's still redneck. But, but, but we got this video put together. It was about three months of editing, and we just got it finished. Gary's got an original draft. It was tweaked just a little bit after Gary got a draft, and we have a shipment, I think, that's going to get shipped out to us on Monday, we think. And then when we're on the road, we'd like to promote and... Uh, Use this as a tool because there's people in America that love white-tailed deer, they love the outdoors, but they don't know Christ. And so we would see this as a tool that someone could buy and give to a loved one that's crazy about white-tailed deer and maybe open their eyes just a little bit. And that's what this is about. So Gary, carry on. 
So when I understood what he was doing, I asked, one, hey, can we show it here? And we're not going to show the whole thing because it runs over an hour in length, right? Hour and seven minutes. So, but it's got segments. It's got chapters to it. And the first chapter deals with the stuff that Steve just mentioned. And we're going we're gonna to watch two chapters of this. There, these chapters happen to run about six minutes each, okay? want you to be aware this is going to be coming. Um, and it's just an interesting element that ties in God's Word to what we're doing this morning with Whitetail Breakfast. And so let's watch that, and you'll enjoy it. Each year, the does on my farm in northwest Minnesota start giving birth about May 25th. The fawns are born with a light coat of brown hair, covered in bright white spots. The white spots on the fawn's birth coat resemble drops of sunlight hitting the forest floor. This camouflage pattern is perfect for helping the newborn fawn blend into the bright spring woods. At this time of year, the nightly temperatures dip down to below freezing. The 30-degree weather seems too cold for a newborn 5-pound baby. However, this birth coat is just enough for the nightly cold temperatures. As each day goes by, the nightly temperatures begin to rise. Soon, the daytime warmth of spring arrives, and the newborn fawn realizes that its light birth coat is just perfect. It is not too hot in the heat of the afternoon, and it is just warm enough in the cool of the night. When the month of August arrives, the fawns start working on growing a new thick coat of winter hair. At first this winter coat is not even visible growing through the fawns birth coat, but it is there providing just a little added comfort as the temperatures start to dip down, heading towards fall and winter. This new winter coat grows in at the exact right pace, adding a small amount of hair length daily, which equals incremental amounts of added daily warmth perfectly meeting the changing needs of the fawn. When winter arrives in full force, the fawn's winter coat is also full, perfectly meeting the winter needs of the fawn. This new winter coat is no longer a bright white spotted spring camouflage, it is a dull brown to blend in perfectly with the new dull fall colors. Okay, so since we're talking about evidence of God's creation, why does any of this stuff matter about a fawn's coat, really? What does it matter? Did God do this or evolution? Well, think about this. The heat cycle of a doe is brought on every fall by the shortening length of daylight. The sun, the times changes. It brings the doe into estrus. One of my does in my climate where I live cannot come into estrus in June or July or just whenever. It's very dependent on coming into heat in the fall. They almost always come into estrus during, in northwestern Minnesota, right about November 8th through the 12th. That's the time frame. It has to be then. The gestation period for a white-tailed deer is 195 days. This brings the fawn's date of birth to right about May 25th, which is perfect for deer in my area. If I, if I had a fawn much earlier than May 25th, born, it would be born on frozen ground, and it would get hypothermia and die. If the fawn was born much later than May 25th, it'd be born too late in the year, it wouldn't have enough winter coat, and it would not be ready for winter. The fawn born too late struggles in deep snow and just has a tough time. So consider this. If I sell a doe to someone else in a southern climate, we usually sell south of us because we're right on the Canadian border. So if I sell a doe and that doe moves further south, the length of daylight changes. 
it starts triggering things in her brain. But when she moves to that new farm, she will not be in cycle with all of the other does in that new climate. One season of living there, her brain's been recalibrated, and she will come into estrus at the same time as all these other does. It's a crazy thing. You move a deer across the country, and she'll start cycling with her new herd. Why is that important? Well, if they move south, it gives them more time to grow as a fawn. They're born earlier. They're better prepared for winter. But where I'm at, boy, is it really narrowed down. Fawns have to be born for optimum survivability right about May 25th. And if that's the case, then they have to come into estrus about November 8th through the 12th, right in that time frame, and things work out perfectly. So God, in all of his majesty, he set the earth to go around the sun, and the timing is so precise, it puts all the baby animals on the ground at the right time of year. So, what are the chances that a random cosmic blob of energy, an evolutionary accident, brought all this into being? There's no way it's possible. The timing would have been off, and all the fawns would have been born too early or too late. The species we know as the white-tailed deer, they would have been done. They would have all died and been off the earth. There's not enough room to vary there. The timing has to be perfect. Where'd that timing come from? That came from God. Okay, so we've taken a close look at the newborn fawn and their coat of hair. Now let's take a look at the adults and their coats of hair. In the spring of the year, the weather starts to warm up and the snow begins to melt. It is at this time of year that the white-tailed deer begin to shed their heavy coats of winter hair. The body of the white-tailed deer can sense the warming seasonal change, and somehow it knows to gear up and to switch out the warm, heavy winter coat for a much-needed, cooler summer coat. The deer begin to grow a new, reddish, thin summer coat of hair. This new red coat begins to grow through the thick winter hair, and it is growing through the winter hair as the winter hair is falling off. As the spring temperatures continue its week-by-week -week climb, the thick winter coat becomes thinner and thinner. The thin red summer coat of hair is now present, and it does an excellent job of keeping the deer cool. White-tailed deer cannot sweat like a person. They are only able to pant. The deer, however, are able to stand their hair up on end and kind of open up their coat, allowing the breeze to come in and cool their skin. The deer are also able to lay their hair down to keep a little extra heat in on a cool summer night. When the leaves begin to change color and the summer heat begins to fade, the white-tailed deer begin shedding their summer coat. It is at this time that they also begin to grow their new winter coat. At first, this new winter coat provides very little warmth. In fact, it is barely visible growing through the red summer hair. However, as the temperatures continually drop, heading for winter, the new winter coat is growing at a comfortable pace. The new winter hair grows in at a rate that meets the needs of the dropping temperature. Their new winter coat is so well insulated that newly fallen snow does not even melt off their back. When the temperatures hit 20, even 30 below zero, the white-tailed deer is fully prepared to face the challenge. When I first started showing my live bucks in the deer trailer, I opened up the trailer in the morning and I noticed a waxy buildup on the bottom of their main beams. 
I didn't know what it was or where it came from. I soon realized that they produce a waxy dander that comes up from their skin and coats their hair. When they sleep at night, their main bean actually rests on their body and it gets covered in this waxy dander. This dander serves as a waterproofing agent that keeps the deer's skin totally dry during wet weather. The changing coats of the white-tailed deer, its perfect timing, is a crazy good design. I have never heard of a deer that died of a heat stroke in the summer because it failed to shed its winter coat. I have also never heard of a deer that froze to death because it could not grow its new winter coat. The timing of the changing coats of the white-tailed deer are an incredible design. The white-tailed deer does not worry about the changing seasons. I think God did a really good job taking care of the white-tailed deer and meeting their needs and having their coats change out at exactly the right pace as needed throughout all the different seasons. I think that's pretty awesome. Let's take a look at a verse here. Matthew 6, 26 through 29 states, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What is the statement, sow nor reap nor gather into barns? What does that mean to you? They don't do that. And so when I gather into barns, I'm getting ready for winter. I'm preparing for a harsher time of year. I'm getting ready. We're putting our hay up. We're putting our grain in. We're taking care of business. The white-tailed deer, they don't have to worry about it. The lilies, the flowers, the birds, they don't have to worry about it. God just takes care of them. I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you, Steve and family, for sharing this with us. There is a lot more on this, uh, on this DVD, a lot more. And I encourage you, when they are available, you're going to have them some here. We can purchase them right here, right? You'll have them for us? And I honestly encourage you, uh, one, you'll just all, you'll, you will all find it interesting. I encourage you to watch, them with, watch it with your children. Uh, there's, there's stuff there on the birth. You, you will watch a live birth of a deer. Fascinating. Uh, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, the other thing, he does a lot with the question of antlers, because as hunters, we're always thinking about antlers, right? So great, great stuff. We look forward to that. And uh, Steve, thanks for doing that. And, and your, your, your desire, your passion, that, that this, what began as a hobby for you, that God will use it for his kingdom. So thank you. Steve has learned something about God by watching the white-tailed deer. We're in the book of Jonah, and Jonah knew some things about God also. In fact, Jonah makes this profession. Verse, chapter 4, verse 2, Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know, this is what I want you to notice, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah also knew something about God. That sounds good, doesn't it? What Jonah knew about God, about God's compassion, about God's grace, about his, his goodness and, and how he forgives those who call upon him. Well, 
I'm counting on the fact most of us here probably know a little bit about the story of Jonah. Because we've, we've used it in Sunday school, we've used it in vacation Bible school programs. He's one of these guys we can come to readily. And we know that the story involves a fish. So let's just give you a little lead-in as to how we got to chapter 4. And it went like this. Chapter 1, Jonah was called by God to go to a city called Nineveh and to preach that they had 40 days. 40 days before God was going to bring judgment upon them. Now, most guys who are prophets, given a clear leading from God like that, would be like, "Woohoo! God's called on me, and I'm going to go preach, and it's going to be awesome. And Jonah went in a boat. He's supposed to be going north, north east uh, on a land travel. He is now gets in a boat and heads west. It's like, nope, not going to do that. So uh, one of the guys that I hunt with his... Uh, his dad was a pastor. He said his dad always used this phrase, here am I, send him. And I thought, oh, that'll work for Jonah, because that's about what Jonah did. Nope, don't send me. I'm not going. So he heads off. He's in a boat. God, and throughout the book, go ahead and read it. You'll see God keeps doing these things. There's a whole lot of miracles in this book where God just sovereignly is at work. God stirs up a storm. The boat is on the verge of sinking. And through a conversation with Jonah and casting of lots, they realized God stirred up this storm. And the only way that they're not, all those sailors aren't going to lose their lives is if they throw Jonah overboard. So they ask God for forgiveness for throwing their prophet out into the water, the sea calms, and that they are all saved, and Jonah begins to sink. And in the sinking into the depths of this sea, God, again, miraculously has prepared a great fish. And... Fish takes Jonah, reorients him. Eventually, after a few days, Jonah's going to be spit off back on land, receive again, receive this commission to go to Nineveh and preach against them. This time he does. And uh, he had a little time with God there in the depths of the fish, if you will. And he called upon him and he confessed to him. So he goes, he preaches to Nineveh that 40 days, you've got a lot of trouble if you don't repent. And unlike what happened through so many of the times of the prophets, and this is a, not the Jewish nation. Nineveh is the great city of the Assyrians, and so they're pagan worshipers. They repent, and they turn from their wickedness, at least for a season, enough of a season, that God then does not judge them. And God does not bring this immediate destruction inside of 40 days. So you would think that the prophet would be like, Woohoo! I listened, I went, I preached. These people weren't destroyed. But that's not what happened, and that's how we got to chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. You see, he understood something about God. You take that verse alone, and it sounds like this great statement upon who God is. But when Jonah gives God this statement, he's like, I'm kind of ticked at you, God, that this part of your nature has come into play, and you didn't bring judgment upon Nineveh. And that's why I didn't want to go there in the first place. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said to him, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm, and it, it, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? So here Jonah has the opportunity to be engaged in God's redemptive work, and he wants to pass on it. Why? (laughs) He's a prophet. You would think that's exactly what he would want to do, is to be engaged in that redemptive work, this redemptive proclamation. Obviously, we have just a few minutes to contemplate all of this, but I'd like to just throw out two things that, that we find at work in Jonah here. Number one, he didn't like the people of Nineveh. Didn't like him. And he knew God was gracious and slow to anger, that he relents from bringing judgment upon those who turn to him. He didn't want to see them redeemed. He didn't want to see the deliverance that he knew would come if he preached and they turned, and he knew God's not going to bring the judgment. And he just didn't like that, because those people at times had been very harsh upon his people of Israel, and he would like to have seen them judged. And that's why he says, isn't this why I went to Tarshish in the first place? Because I knew the potential was the judgment wasn't going to happen. I hated Timmy James. I didn't start out hating Timmy James. Actually, I thought Timmy James and I were going to be friends one day. Because Timmy James lived in the bank of houses that a road was cut in the field behind our block. We had a block that ended in a field. And there was a field behind us, a field at the end. And it just was this dead-end road. And some developers came in and they put a road behind it. And eventually all these roads got connected and this field no longer exists. But I remember when it was a field. And they built this bank of houses right behind our house. We used to play on the dirt piles when, we, when the construction was going on, and we just had a great time there. And young families are moving into these houses right behind our house or behind the kids on our block. And, and I was stupid enough when this one family with two little boys, approximately my age, I was stupid enough to think, we're going to be friends. We have more friends right here. We have a neighborhood, the right backyard, the backyard. This is going to be great. Timmy James was not a good friend. Because somehow, Timmy James was, and and I'm not exaggerating, he'd always go tell his mom that the other boys in the neighborhood did all these terrible things to him. And we're like, 
did you do that to him? No, I didn't. I didn't do that to him. He'd go, Mom would come out and yell at us boys for things we didn't do because Timmy James would run home to Mom and say these things. Well, we just got to detest this kid. We didn't hang out with him. Who wants to hang out with a guy who's, one, always running to Mommy, telling her lies, and then she comes out and gets on your case when you know we haven't done anything. And we would try and say that to her, and her answer was, we didn't do this. My Timmy wouldn't lie. Oh, man, okay? So rather than hurt him, we just ignored him. But I hated Timmy James as a little boy. Growing up, just didn't hang out with Timmy James. He was not going to be a friend. Came to Christ in the eighth grade, hated Timmy James. Went through high school, anytime I'd see him, didn't hang out with him, but see him. Hated Timmy James. Got to be early college years, going to community college. My brother invited me to head to a church, preaches the gospel. Got involved, got involved in leading Bible studies. This literally happened. I recall there being one time when I'm walking through our neighborhood and I saw his family drive by. I'm in college now and I still hate Timmy James. Like, God's doing a work in my life. It's like, God, you got to do something here. I hate that guy. I don't really care if he goes to hell or not. Now, I'm leading in a Bible study with college-age students. And one night, I'm in this room, and we broke up into small groups. I'm leading this Bible study. And this kid, who never comes to that, opens the door and walks into my Bible study. Timmy J. God's like, (laughs) what are you going to do, Barrett? What are you going to do? But you know, it wasn't what I did. It was what God did because God transformed my heart. I wanted Timmy James to know Christ. And all of that stuff that had happened didn't matter instantly. People, here's a question. (laughs) Are there times, are there times when God would call us to be part as the church, right? In this day and age, we don't live when Jonah lived as a church. Are there times when God would call us to have a redemptive message for people around us and it's hard for us to share simply because we don't like them? Like Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh and I didn't like Timmy James. How do we be known as a people who love God and love the work of God if we are a people who isolate others? One, maybe their personal history with us. Don't like them because of the personal history with me, and there's no room for forgiveness in that. Maybe we don't like them because they're part of a people group that we just don't like people from that people group. Ethnically, morally, uh, economically, it's like, oh, no, no, we... We stay separated from them. Maybe they went to a different high school than us, and there was always Bob talks about the, the rivalries between the schools around here, and so now we can't get over that. I don't care what it is. But friends, can we really be people effectively carrying a redemptive message if we decide there are people out there I don't like, and because I don't like them... I don't care if they go to hell. Just something for us to think about. 
We could go spend a lot more time on it. We're down to a couple minutes. Here's the second thing. This whole bit with the plant. Jonah sits out there, and he's going to watch what happens with the city. Maybe the 40-day time period hasn't ended, and so he's going to wait and see. How's God going to, what's God going to do here? And it's, it can be hot and windy and dry and uncomfortable. So God raises up a plant to shade Jonah. He's like, woo, this is good. I'm comfortable. And then God lets the plant get destroyed by a worm. God's miracle. Just read it. He's doing all of this. Now Jonah's angry. God says, uh, you got right to be angry about the plant. you got nothing invested in the plant. The plant's not yours. You had nothing to do with it. Why are you so angry about a plant? Yeah, I'm right to be angry. I just, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm back out here in the wind and the sun, and I like the plant. But it's like the, you had nothing to do with that plant. But you're angry that it came and that it went with no investment in it. And God says, do you not realize that the people of Nineveh 120,000. So there's minimally that many there, depending on how you want to interpret what that means. It may be as many as 600,000 people who are part of Nineveh. I won't go through those permutations with you. Um, But he says, these are people who I have created, and I've been seeking to reach them redemptively, and you are my vessel, and they matter to me. They're real people. What about my care for them as opposed to your care for your own comfort by a plant you've invested nothing in. What about my care for these people? And it just raises a second question, friends. And the second question simply is this. Is there times when we don't reach out to other people because, you know, it just makes me a little uncomfortable? It's not convenient. It's like Jonah. It's like I like sitting here in the shade and all of my needs being met. But, uh, oh, I'm supposed to reach out to someone? I'm supposed to go past my own comfort levels at times. Wow, that's not what I wanted to get into this for. I'm just asking us to consider, friends. I've been watching this fall, and I'm just going to, there's one application, there could be 50, but I'm just speaking to us corporately, so nobody takes us personally. But I have seen people come sit here since September that I've never seen in this church before. Are we willing to take the time with visitors? Are we willing to take the time with people who are here for the first time? Is it like, oh, I got stuff I got to do right now. Somebody else picked that up. I don't want to be inconvenienced with this redemptive message that we can love people and reach them for the kingdom. Just something to consider because Jonah found that plant coming up and going away really inconvenient. He wanted to be comfortable. God's trying to point to him, say, Jonah, and you're worrying about your own comfort There are people here who need to be redeemed from an eternal loss. Friends, I'm just trying to ask two simple questions. Is it possible there are people we don't want to share Christ with because, one, we don't care for them. We just don't like those people. Would God deliver us from that today? Two, is there times where we don't get engaged with people because it's too inconvenient? I don't want to deal with the visitors here. I come here for my needs. I come here so I can sit in the coolest shade and hear the songs and, and, and sing with people and, and maybe the pastor will say something that speaks to my heart and encourages me, but I don't want to mess with somebody else and their stuff. Just thoughts for us to consider. God will let us know if there's some things we need to bring before him. Father, thank you. 
for the joy of your work in our lives. And Lord, sometimes it's just your people. We are redeemed, but the idea of bringing this redemption to others, at times it just kind of sticks in our craw, Father. So if we're wrestling with that, if you have spoken to any of us today about that, about there's somebody we don't like, and therefore we won't go near them, or there's just it's inconvenient, Lord, I pray that we'll yield that, confess it, and allow you to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.